We find ourselves this evening in Revelation chapter 20, and this evening we'll be looking at the first six verses of the chapter. Let's read them and then we'll look at them. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years, or I'm sorry, for a 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years." Have you been to a feature-length movie lately? that after watching the entire movie, you came to the end and the credits began to roll and you start gathering your stuff, your jacket per se and other items and you get ready to leave the theater only to discover that no one else is leaving the theater. Have you had this happen to you yet? It's because they know something is coming that you apparently don't know that something is coming. And you're ready to leave, but they're all sitting there waiting with their 3D glasses on, looking ridiculous, looking at the credits in 3D. Many motion pictures today have inserted little scenes at the end of the credits to give you a a little glimpse of what might be coming in the next feature film of that particular series. And so as the credits roll, people then wait in anticipation hoping to get a glimpse of what is coming next. Often, I believe, when the book of Revelation is approached, when you come to chapter 19 and the return of Jesus Christ occurs, you kind of feel between chapters 19 and 20 that the credits are rolling. And sometimes I feel that Christians kind of check out at that point. Hey, Christ has come back. Everything is good again. Not understanding that as the credits are rolling, there's something still coming. A lot is still coming here in the book of Revelation. It's not time to check out just because we saw our Lord's return last week here together in Revelation 19. For we are going to discover in Revelation chapter 20 that there is a period of time coming where it appears that Jesus Christ, after his return, will reign on earth for a long period of time. A thousand years, if taken literally, or longer if it's maybe figuratively spoken. But for a long period of time, Jesus Christ will reign physically on this earth. Afterwards will come the new heaven and the new earth that we will enjoy for all eternity. 
Many have called this period of time, this thousand year period of time, which you have already seen delineated several times as we quickly read through the text uh, at the beginning. It's a period of time that seems to be set aside for this moment. And it has certainly drawn great, great speculation of what's going to occur during that time. Most of that comes out of the Old Testament, filling in the details. For in actuality, here in Revelation chapter 20, which often becomes uh, the keystone, or I should say the cornerstone passage for this millennial because it is spelled out, in actuality tells us very little about it. It just says that this is going to occur, that something more is going to happen. And it begins with the binding of Satan himself. Now, if you remember last week after the Lord returned, he dealt swiftly with the false prophet and the Antichrist, casting them into the lake of fire which we'll discover later next week in this chapter, is a place of torment forever and ever where they will be tormented for their deception of the world. That being said, there was one behind the Antichrist, one behind the false prophet, that the book of Revelation delineated and called the dragon. It is now he that is being dealt with. And we begin in Revelation chapter 20 to deal with Satan. Let's begin in verse 1. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. A common occurrence, something we've seen several times in the book of Revelation, an angel doing the bidding of God. And this time we find that he's holding in his hand a key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. This next verse is somewhat troubling. And after that, though, he must be released for a little while. Oh, God, why? Let's find out. From the very beginning, the great adversary that we contend with, the ruler of this world, the one that we know as the devil, Satan himself, Beelzebub, if you hold to the King James tradition, Lucifer, the light bearer himself, the one who fell because of pride, who desired to be like God, the one who stood before uh, God and desired to be worshipped as God and so forth and was cast down. And from the very beginning of creation, it was him in the garden who began to sway and tempt Eve into seduction of eating the fruit of the one tree that God had forbid. You know the story. And from the very beginning to the very end, this great adversary has made himself known to all of us. Constantly trying to oppose and resist the work of God. To stumble it, to hinder it, to set it off course. As he swept across the world, deceiving 
the world, blinding the eyes of the world because of the fallen condition that they find themselves in. He is now dealt with. We don't know who this angel is. A name is not given to him. We don't know if it's Michael or Gabriel or um, Ralph. We don't know who he is. And it's not important. But we do know what he does. He seizes that serpent of old, the dragon, the devil. Satan is a fallen angel himself. He took one-third of the angels with him at his fall. They had then become demons. And God dealt swiftly and precisely with him at the return by the word of his mouth. And now he is able to be seized. He is able to be bound. And he's able to be thrown into a bottomless pit known as the abyss. It was shut and sealed that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The abyss is something that is talked about often in the book of Revelation, this bottomless pit. We find it mentioned in other places in the New Testament, such as Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It is these angels that I believe are released in the book of Revelation to cause havoc. In 2 Peter 2.4 we read, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, speaking about an occurrence back at the time of Noah, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. It is this abyss that Satan now finds himself in. It is shut, it is sealed, and will not be open again for a thousand years. But after that, he must be released for a little while. Notice here that the purpose of this incarceration is found in this verse, verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. To deceive means to cause to wander off the path, not occurring in the New Testament. It means to cause someone to hold a wrong view and thus be mistaken, to mislead, to deceive, uh, an error of deception, to cause to be mistaken. The great preacher Cease said it himself this way, and I really love his articulation. Listen to what he says. I'll read it slowly and carefully. The truth is ever against him. Therefore, falsehood is his particular resource and instrument. But naked, falsehood is only repulsive. We know it to be a lie, and therefore it cannot command our respect. Untruth can only gain credence and acceptance by being so disguised as to appear to be the truth. Falsehood can have no power over us until we are led to believe and conclude that it is the truth. And this deluding of men, getting them to accept and follow lies and false hopes under the persuasion that they are accepting and following the truth, is the great work and business of Satan in every age. I love that. He can no longer deceive the world. People embracing the lie 
believing it to be truth. He is incapable from this place of incarceration to deceive the nations any longer. Robert Mounts says it this way in his commentary. The elaborate measures taken to ensure his custody are most easily understood as implying the complete sensation of his influence on earth rather just than simply curbing his activities. But he is released. And you may find that troubling. His release will not affect you and I. His release is to deal with and to lead astray, if possible, those in the millennial kingdom who choose not to follow Jesus Christ. This will not be a test for you and I that we will be subjected to. It is to offer a true choice once again. But his release is determined. As we are now introduced to this thousand-year period of time, let us call it what scholars and Christians have called it for thousands of years, the millennial period, the period of a thousand years. There are three distinct approaches to the millennial period mentioned here in Revelation chapter 20. One of those positions it's called amillennialism, which in Latin means no millennial. And it believes that the millennial is the present spiritual reality instituted by Christ at his first coming. At which time they believe Satan was bound. The thousand-year reign is now occurring at the, as the souls of the deceased believers rule with Christ in heaven. Meaning that there is no millennial kingdom. This binding of Satan that we are reading of here does not happen after his second coming, but actually happened at his first coming. Unfortunately, there are many places in the New Testament that speak to the contrary, telling us very clearly that Satan is roaming like a lion. One said it this way, if this is true that Satan was bound and shut in and sealed at the first coming of Jesus Christ... That must be one long leash and a pretty poor lock. It cannot occur in that event. Satan is still working. And every New Testament writer saw that fact and attested to that fact. It cannot be as they state. And we also then miss the ruling of God here on this earth. Christ's reign is not something that's only going to be contained in heaven but also must be practically applied here on the earth, which we'll discuss in just a moment. So my, to my amillennialist friends, I would ask them to consider the number of passages that talk about Satan's work currently in this age. There are also those who hold to a postmillennial position. Now, postmillennialist is the belief that the church with its evangelistic outreach, has a direct role in bringing in the millennium. As the nations become progressively more Christian and the kingdom of God is established more fully on the earth, the millennial period is ushered in. After the thousand years of peace and prosperity on the earth, Jesus will return. 
Some might be more familiar with a post-millennial idea in a theology that was very prevalent here in Chicago about 30 years ago called Kingdom Theology, which believed that it was the church's mission to clean up the world in preparation for Jesus Christ's return. Again, this position is contrary to, I believe, the progression of Scripture, where we see a clear delineation of the world continuously falling farther, farther into decay. The kingdom of God is invisible, but those who are part of it are being sanctified day by day, being drawn into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's at the return of Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is physically placed on this earth. That leads me to the third position, a position we hold to here at Calvary. That is premillennialism. And that is the belief that Jesus will return before the millennium. And after Satan is bound, the saints will reign on earth with Christ for a thousand years. And there are, of course, variations to these three positions. A lot of it has to do with the placement of the rapture. For example, you have in the premillennialism, you have historic, which holds to a post-trib position of the rapture. And you have pre-trib millennial, premillennialism, which believes in the rapture happening before the tribulation period. Well, now that we've used a lot of very big words, let us ask the question that I think all of us need to ask at this point, and it's a valid question. Why is a millennial kingdom needed? What purpose does it serve for a thousand-year reign or longer reign of Christ here on this earth? Well, let me give you a few reasons why I believe it is necessary. Number one, for one thing, it will be the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to Christ. Psalm 2 directs, uh, directly responds to this as a promise is made in verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage as the Father is speaking unto the Son here in this psalm. And then the ends of the earth, your possessions, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, which we read about at his return. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him." A promise from the Father to the Son that He would be given dominion over the earth in a physical rule. But it's also promised here in Luke 1, 30-33. Let me read this for you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor in, with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and the kingdom, and his kingdom, there will be no end. The promise of the Lord reigning physically on this earth seems to be captured in the New and the Old Testament, reaffirmed to the apostles themselves. In Luke twenty two twenty eight through 30, we read, And you who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's also a moment where the world will be just, the world will enjoy the display of Christ's glory. As Romans 8, 9 through 22, 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That means the return. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. It will be an answer, fourthly, to the prayers of the saints. Thy kingdom come. It will also be a final demonstration of, a demonstration of the sinless, sinfulness and sin of the wickedness of the human heart apart from God's grace and so forth. The millennial reign, a time where Jesus Christ will physically reign on this earth because he now has the authority to do so. He bought and paid for not only you and I, but the redemption of creation at his first coming. He will return in his second coming to possess it, and then he will reign over it physically from Jerusalem for a thousand year period of time. What a glorious hope that is in the Christian life. It's hard to believe, though, isn't it? It may sound foreign to many of you. Wow, Jesus is physically going to reign. What is that going to be like? It's going to be pretty fascinating, to say the least. One of the blessed hopes that we find here after the credits have rolled. That's why I'm glad we didn't get out of the theater before we finished the book. And there are still more great things to come. There are many verses on the millennial kingdom or this millennial reign or this period of time. Most are found within the Old Testament. And there are debates on the application of some of these passages if they have to do with the millennial or the eternal state. I'm going to read ones that I believe depict the millennial state and therefore the transition into the eternal state will be well at hand. Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. And it shall come to pass. Isaiah has a lot to say apparently about the millennial kingdom. And it shall come to pass in the latter days. This is again Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. That the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. And this passage that has intrigued many, I read to you this evening, Isaiah 11, 6 through 10, one that I find that is in many, many children's Bibles, and also has comforted many's hearts 
who seem to really be affectionate and love animals. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in any of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's the first time in almost all of history that Israel will find security and blessedness. As Amos promised in Amos 9, 11 through 12, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as is the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. It will be a time, the millennial kingdom, of complete devotion unto God. Idolatry will no longer be tolerated. One of the debated chapters is Zechariah 13. They believe portions apply to this time. I'll read it for your consideration. And Isaiah, I'm sorry, Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day there should be a fountain opened up from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the nations of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirits of uncleanness. And later on, in verse 8, And in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And it will be this third into the fire and refining of one's refiner's silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Things for you to consider. Possible glimpses into this millennial period. Many are asked who hold to a millennial position, again, why it is necessary. And the standard answer, the most common answer, is that because it demonstrates tangible proof of victory over evil. Showing that the Satan has been bound and displaced permanently, and now we see a risen, returned Christ in his place. Robert Mounts goes on one step further to say, but please notice that it appears to also be a reward for those who have suffered during the tribulation period. He's the only one that makes this observation, and I think it's interesting to consider as we go from the descent of Satan in our first half, verses 1 through 3, to the ascending to the throne, verses 4 through 6. Let's look at them together. And then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who 
had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received a mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So there is a resurrection that takes place. There are thrones that are occupied and those seated upon them that here we are not given any definitive uh, understanding of their identity, of who these are that are sitting on these thrones. We don't know. But we have scripture that may possibly give us some insight. Some believe that these are the uh, thrones are occupied by the apostles. Again, remember that promise that was given to them, that they would occupy thrones and they would be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's an interesting passage that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is a reminder to you and I who are part of this also, that we will be the judges of angels. That's interesting. But here we also have to take into consideration not only possibly those who occupy the seats, but also who stand before them. He says, I see these thrones, I see them who are seated on it to judge The authority to judge was committed to them. And then he says, I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are the ones that we've seen now come through the great tribulation period, be beheaded because they did not want to seal their allegiance to the Antichrist uh, through the acceptance of the the mark, either on the uh, the forehand or on the forehead. And therefore they were beheaded, they were martyred for their faith. But here they're raised up. Remember the souls that were underneath the altar that cried out for justice. It appears now that they have been risen up and rejoined with their bodies. And as it says here, these who have not received the mark on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So not only those who have been taken in the rapture before the tribulation period, but also these now are raised and to join us who are entering into the millennial kingdom to, for the purposes of reigning with Christ for 1,000 years. In this state, please understand that we have our glorified bodies. And though the millennial kingdom, some will go in, sin is still present, we are no longer subjected to sin. Satan is bound so he will no longer have the opportunity to deceive in the manner in which he has during our time here on the earth. But we are not going to go back, we are not going to enter the millennial kingdom and and there will not be required for us to be saved again. That's not going to occur. That's not going to happen. But it is interesting that it states it here. And then he goes on, because I really want to get to this next point. Some of you may have thought, since we're only looking at six verses tonight, that we were going to get out of here early, and that I'm mistaken that there was another Cubs game this evening. But in actuality, in these six verses, two very, very deep concepts are considered. One, the millennial reign, And number two, this idea of the first resurrection that all of us want to pay attention to. So as they entered in, they came and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. 
Notice verse 5, that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So it appears that at this point, those who have been resurrected are those who are believers in Christ. The rest will be resurrected at the end of the thousand year period. This is the first resurrection. He says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's talk about this first resurrection. The first resurrection is a hope that we all have in Jesus Christ. All who are in Christ will be part of the first resurrection. And therefore, the second resurrection, there will be one, and the death that precedes it is something that we no longer need to fear because we have been blessed to partake in and to share in the first resurrection. What a resurrection is in a biblical consideration, this is important for us to know. It is a resurrection as the rejoining of body and soul to be with God forever, to not die again. Does that make sense? Today, when a person dies who is in Christ, we have the blessed promise of the soul going to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our body then goes to the grave and returns to the dust in which it was formed. But the tradition of resurrection is a renewing or a rejoining of the two. And this has raised a lot of questions. For example, one of the questions that I still am given all the time is, well, if the resurrection is true... Should a Christian even consider cremation? Because how in the world will God bring it all back together again? I don't know how God's going to bring a body back who's buried intact for five years, let alone one who has been cremated. But God is able to do it. There was actually a debate back in church history that if a body was planted under an apple tree and the tree then grew its roots into that uh, casket and sucked the nutrients out of that dead body, brought it into the tree, and then into the apples of the tree, and those apples were picked and eaten, how could God ever reassemble that particular body? These are actual concerns that people had had. Let's give God a little bit more credit, and let's quit limiting Him to our potential weaknesses and limitations. But that's what a resurrection is. It is the rejoining of body and soul to be with God for all eternity, not to die again. In the New Testament, we have people raised from the dead, right? And often they call it a resurrection. But those people then die again. For example, Lazarus. He was raised from the dead, correct? But he died again. That theologically I would call resuscitation. He comes back. You know, God brings him back. Yes, he was dead. Now he is alive again, but he dies again. So I want to clarify resurrection a little bit for you and say that's the rejoining of body and soul 
to be with God for all eternity. There's also a resurrection unto death. A second resurrection. The souls of an unbeliever go to hell. At the resurrection of the death, their bodies are joined and then for all eternity, they stand before God first and foremost, which we'll read next week, and then they will be sentenced to an eternity as separated from God for all eternity. Now, some believe that this first resurrection happens all at one time. That all of this occurs at one particular time. Others believe that it's gradual, with Jesus Christ being the fruit, first fruit of it, and then it happens in stages. This is the position I hold to. Jesus Christ being the first fruit of the resurrection. That's what the scriptures actually call him to be. Now, after his resurrection, we know from Matthew 27, 52 and 53, that the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That, might have been, that must have been a sight, huh? Did you know that the Bible was the original source of zombie movies? Here you go. No. We have a resurrection here. However, though, we don't know what happened to these individuals. There's no indication if they ascended into heaven, and there's no indication that they died once again. So technically, we don't know if this is a resurrection or a resuscitation. We don't know. To use this as an example of a period of time, well, we just don't know of this gradual resurrection. But we do have these verses to consider. But at the rapture of the church, it's a little bit more clear. Let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's our example of resurrection. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of our Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or who have died. The rapture is not going to proceed, meaning we are not going to precede those who have died before us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a great, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them, to into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. There's a definition of resurrection. Through the rapture, there's a rejoining or a translation, I should say, of us who are alive going from mortal to immortality. And here we have a picture of those who have died and fallen asleep at that same moment, rising and preceding us with God for all eternity, meaning it seems like it happens instantaneously all at one time, but the point is, is that this is the moment of resurrection. And again, some place it at the beginning of the tribulation and others place it at the end of the tribulation. But that being said, we see here that this is a point of resurrection. If this happens prior to the portion of Scripture that we are currently reading, then we seem to have and indicate a time where others are resurrected who have come through the great tribulation. Verse 4 of chapter 20. 
Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. If you read there in your text, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark or on its forehead or on its hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. And most scholars believe that that's a resurrection experience, though the wording is a little bit different. So the point is that those who are in Christ, since Christ is the first fruit, then the rapture of the church, and wherever you place it, before or after, this is the first resurrection. And we have these who are accounted in that first resurrection. If it's a series of events, or as commentators have stated, is it a matter of more life than death than individual events of themselves, meaning that the crux of the matter is the fact that those in the first resurrection enjoy life, and those part of the second resurrection are uh, sentenced to death. And that's the separation or the difference between the two. Either way, what John wants us to know is this. That we are blessed to be part of this first resurrection. Verse 6. There are three reasons that John gives us for our reason to be thankful to be part of the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Does anybody in their English translation have an exclamation point after that sentence? Yeah, I do too. I think that's really what John wants us to be. You be part of the first resurrection. That's what he wants you to be part of. And that can only, you can only be part of that if you are in Christ. That's what he is driving home here. Now it is interesting that he says here that we are blessed and holy for the one who shares in the first resurrection. Why? Number one, over such the second death has no power. We will not die again. We are going to go from life, if we die before He returns, to death, and then to life again, never to die again. If one is apart from Christ, they are going to go from life to death to death for all eternity. And so it must be understood that we want to be part of this first resurrection. Resurrection is a huge doctrine in the Christian faith, Old and New Testament. The Jewish understanding of resurrection, the Christian understanding of resurrection, this is part of the great hope that we have. And know that it is more than just a soul resurrection. It's a reuniting of body and soul together. That's key. I believe that's key. And then our transformation into the glorified body that God has waiting for us. I feel that that's very important to remind all of us of. But not only do we not have to fear the second death, that we are going to live with God for all eternity, and it has no power over us any longer, He goes on to say, we'll be priests of God and of Christ. Number two, we're going to be blessed to be priests of God and of Christ. An interesting, interesting um, 
characteristic that he gives us to enter into the millennial kingdom. And then we will reign with him, not be like just all who are in there, but be different in the sense that we are reigning as priests of Christ with him for that thousand year period of time. Fascinating, three reasons why we are blessed to be part of this first resurrection. Listen to what Paige Patterson said. He said, Since Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, and then those who are and then those that are his at his coming, and these that are now joined by the resurrected righteous dead from the tribulation period, the first resurrection seems then not to emphasize order but life. In other words, the first resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life, while the second resurrection will be a resurrection to damnation. And it is interesting that this is exactly what he says is found in the fifth beatitude, which follows in verse 6, blessed, just like the beatitudes of Jesus, that's what he's making a parallel to, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Very interesting. The issue is life. And again, we are confronted with the reality that Jesus Christ separates us from death for all eternity. We are getting a glimpse of what happens after the return of Jesus Christ. We're getting a glimpse that Satan is going to be bound for a 1,000 year period of time to no longer be able to deceive the nations. And for 1,000 years it appears that Jesus then reigns on the earth in a physical, practical capacity. Us reigning with Him during this time. All who are in Christ reigning with Him during this time. These are things I can't even comprehend. I don't know about you. I'm still stuck playing with the leopard back in Isaiah. Let alone to think of these glorious truths which I believe we should take literally until told not to. That these things will occur as the Scriptures unfold them before us here in our text. And then to know that it's not over. That our reign, this thousand-year reign of Christ is not the end in and of itself. That there is still yet more to come. As we get into chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth that we will explore together, further hope for us who are in Christ. But before getting there, there must be this second resurrection. Those who will come before God Himself, one who sits on a great white throne, and will be judged according to all that are written in the books and to be evaluated and to be assessed to see if their names are found in the book of life. And before that, we are going to find that Satan at the end will be released from that prison to deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth one last time. And as he rallies the people together in one last attempt of rebellion, He is thrown down permanently by God forever and ever. And the new heavens and the new earth occur. The question is, are you part of the first resurrection? Are you in Christ? 
I pray that you will consider that. That you will meditate on these things. Because often these things I don't believe are considered by Christians, but they're part of the greatest development of hope that we carry as believers in Jesus Christ. I truly believe that we need to understand these things to the degree that we can and not lose sight of what the Scripture is actually trying to teach us, that we need to know that we are part of that first resurrection. I pray that you will consider these things, this millennial period, the first resurrection, so much found in six little verses. We may have glimpsed to what this period of time is going to look like from Old Testament passages, but it's tough to tell for sure what is part of the millennial kingdom and what's part of the eternal state. But I'll tell you this, they're both great. They're both awesome. And I'm looking forward to it. I can't believe that my Savior, my Lord, has gone to prepare a place for me that I can be assured of and that to know that I can be secure in to the depth and to the breadth that we have here in our text this evening.